Hello, and welcome to The Go-To for Entrepreneurs in the Know, special edition. My name is Paulina Cameron. I'm the CEO of the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, a Canadian charity that energizes, educates, mentors, and connects women entrepreneurs to become wildly successful. I'll be your host for this special five-episode week-long program aimed at strengthening your and your business's resilience. I would like to acknowledge that the production of this podcast is taking place on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. This special edition will take you on a resilience journey. You will learn, challenge yourself and your ideas, and you will be empowered to make real changes in your business today so that you will be better prepared as a leader to handle the challenges of tomorrow. We're going to dive into considerations and tangible tools that will equip you in feeling ready, strong, and resilient. To support you through this learning, we've also made a special workbook available for you to download, containing exercises and templates so that you can apply your learnings straight away. Visit resilience.fwe.ca for your free workbook and information on other support to help you along. The Go-To Special Edition is brought to you by the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Support is also generously provided by the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. A huge thank you to our supporters for making this possible. This special edition of The Go-To focuses on resilience, the quality that allows people and organizations to move through adversity and into optimism. No matter what the challenge is that a business is facing, a team is always part of the solution. Without a team's buy-in, commitment, and execution of a plan, businesses can't survive, pivot, or thrive. Hand-in-hand with this goes a team's culture, the how behind the team's cohesion, energy, and forward movement. In this episode, we dive into what makes outstanding teams operate at their best, how leaders can support themselves and their teams in thriving, and how businesses can integrate their values into a living and breathing culture. We will also talk about the need for taking care of one's own well-being and how to tune into the wisdom of ourselves, our bodies, and our ancestors to do so. Grab a glass of water and let's get into it. Before we continue, I am so excited to invite you to a just-launched new digital space, the sharing platform hosted by FWE in partnership with the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. The sharing platform brings our community alive and closer together. It's a space for you to ask, for what your business needs, and to offer what you have to support others. This bilingual and national platform will allow you to connect with fellow entrepreneurs and supporters from across the country so that you can receive what you need to move your business forward and generously offer what you have back to the community. Visit our website, fwe.ca, to watch a quick how-to video and link to download it today. See you on there. Steve Rio is a visionary entrepreneur, leader, futurist, philosopher, investor, transformational coach, and a musician based on Bowen Island, BC. He is the founder of Nature of Work and BrightWeb and is the host of Now with Steve Rio, a podcast that explores what it means to live a good life. Steve is an expert in performance and wellness, team culture, purpose-built organizations, future of work, remote and distributed teams, and technology. His passion is helping people and teams expand their consciousness and realize their full potential. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. Welcome. Okay, Steve, so you have led remote teams spanning across 25 cities, multiple time zones, and across diverse cultures. When you have thought about how to create a thriving and effective team and workplace culture, where did you begin? Yeah, for me, any organization starts with purpose. Um, so that for me is always like the bullseye, the center of everything that I've done. And to me, I've always, I think of the term, like I think of it as a force field, like purpose and culture, create this force field around what you're doing, um, that attracts the right people. It aligns people. It it kind of aligns everything you're trying to do. So that's always the starting point to me. Um, yeah. And then I'd say, you know, on top of that is creating a safe space for, um, for people to show up as their whole selves, to be empowered, to learn, to grow, to try things out. Um, and then of course, I think you need some structure and you need, um, 
you know, processes and agreements and things like that so that you can actually scale your purpose and your values and your culture. Can based on let's say Brightweb and uh, a nature of work, what are the two purposes? What are the purposes of each of those businesses? Yeah. So, um, well, Brightweb is really to empower change makers um, through through the services we offer. So, it's always it, ten years ago when Brightweb started, um, there really wasn't a lot of people serving the people on the front lines of social change. So, um, serving nonprofits and foundations and things like that. And I just really saw a need for that. And it wasn't so much, again, it was like, I didn't really see an obvious business model. I always figured I'd figure that part out. I just knew that there was a purpose and a need to do this. <laughs> and that's what drove me to do it. And so that so that's always been the, the thing there. And then for nature of work, it's to help people realize their full potential. And, and, and the broader picture of that to me is that when people realize their full potential and they sort of expand their consciousness, then they can really impact the world. So for me, that's what it's all about with Nature of Work. When you have brought then those businesses to life, so created the business plans behind it, how much changed over the period of time? So, you know, you had this purpose and the vision and then the what became what it was. And over the 10 years that you're running it, and now as you consider Nature of Work, how do you move through the bringing that to life? Yeah. So when I started BrightWeb, I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have a lot of strategy. I was good at the things we did. So I was a good designer and I was a good developer. Um, and I had a passion for helping the people we helped. So it was really organic. And so I would say that over the years, what was layered onto that was a business strategy and a plan and, and learning how to do, do that well and at scale. And as our clients got bigger, learning how to be more sophisticated, learning how to do sales um, to organizations in the U.S. and to, in Europe and other places in the world, so learning the different cultures around communications and sales and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then really learning to be agile and um, evolve how the organization structured. So a few years in 2016, BrightWeb launched the network, which was fully distributed um, remote workers. And we have basically, that's where the the 25 cities comes in. We have people working all over the world now. And that was a few years ahead of the way we're now thinking about remote work and the, and the way that this whole future of work thing, it was, it was future of work then. Um, and it was really about, to me, I saw something coming, um, where people no longer necessarily wanted to be full-time somewhere. They wanted flexibility to do different things with their lives or they wanted to travel while they worked or do schoolwork or raise kids or have a flexible, you know, time, time, um, like times of when they worked and things like that. So I just saw this, I kind of saw that the traditional employment contract was a bit of a false paradigm and that you could, you could create lasting relationships with people regardless of the type of contract you had with them. That if you create a flexible arrangement that creates value for both people, that that would be a lasting system that would work really well. And so that's like an example of just th seeing seeing trends shift and seeing the way things were going and adapting in that way. Um, and it's interesting that Nature of Work is actually a company that's been born out of what I've seen with the people that work at BrightWeb and for myself. So really seeing that as technology has become more and more prevalent, in our work and the way we communicate and so much of our work is virtual and our phones have become so present in our lives and social media and all this stuff that like there's a growing there's a growing issue around our mental wellness and around our work habits that is kind of like been spiraling for decades but technology now is making it really hard to get anything done to focus it's really fragmenting the way our brain works the way our thinking works um and just making it it's driving down our 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 um our personal wellness. And so nature of work was really born out of what I was seeing from people working this digital lifestyle and for myself as well. So it was, it was really, again, just born out of a need and I could see purpose there. I could see the need for this. So I just started working on it. Mm. So let's dive into that, like the, the tangible pieces that need to be there for organizations and teams to thrive? What are some of those habits or routines or processes that leaders can put in place to do really well together? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that there's so much good, there's so many different technology platforms that we can install in our organizations. It's creating this unbelievable flexibility. I'm talking to you from Bowen Island. I run two different companies <laughs> from this little home office in the, you know, in a fairly rural place. So it creates this incredible lifestyle. 
but it also creates, uh, I'd say, a demand for um, a strong self-awareness around our habits around our technology because because we be, we can be more, um, we're basically communicating almost all the time, especially right now. I mean, given everything that's happening right now, our whole lives are 2D, really. Like our whole, like 2D meaning we're on video all the time or we're on phone calls or, or we're on Slack mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And while that can be really empowering, I also think that's that poses a real challenge because it's it's um it's really hard in the brain the way these technologies work. They like they allow us to communicate instantly all the time. We're sort of always on. We're getting distracted all the time. So one of the things that I think is super key around habits and routines, both on an individual level and an, like a team level, is having boundaries and having basically taking back control over your time and attention. So, so for me, a big part of that is thinking through when am I in communication mode and when am I responding to messages on Slack? Like we use Slack, so messages on Slack or, or emails. And when am I actually supposed to be focused on an important piece of work? And when am I tuning out distractions? What are things that individuals can consider for themselves first? And then secondly, let's talk about as teams, what agreements do we need to have in place for this to actually work? So I'd, I'd say actually the first, the first step is slowing down enough and creating some space in your day to start listening into your body. So actually reconnecting into your body. And I think that very simple practices, you know, just taking a moment to in between tasks and things to stop and breathe to sense of how, how are you feeling? Are you feeling exhausted? Do you need water? Do you need to take a break? And, and you start to, you start to learn when, when you're, when you're when you're strong and when you're when you need rest, um, I think one of the challenges um, is that when we um, basically what happens right now is like we have a piece of work, then we have a meeting, and we have five minutes in between. But instead of taking those five minutes to check in with ourselves or to actually lower everything down a bit, we jump on our phone, and mm-hmm. so what ends up happening is we go through the entire day without checking in and disconnect, and our body is completely disconnected from our brain. And so we're, we, we, we lose our self-awareness and we lose awareness of what our body needs, which is a very key part of our performance and our well-being. On the team side, I think it's, it, it has to start with leadership and all the way down and understanding that um, for our people to thrive and to do good work, they need focused time. And we can't expect them to constantly be responding to our Slack messages or our text messages or whatever, and that we have to, we have to figure out what is, what is our rhythm as an organization or as a team. So I think when I, when I think about teams, like I always just, I I always talk to teams about what are the times of day when we can all agree to block out the calendar and say, this is focus time. We're all focused. We're not communicating with one another at all during this time. There's no meetings from 10 to noon, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or whatever those times are. And coming to some agreements around the general rhythm of that, but then also just the unspoken expectations that get built in an organization um, in the void of having any agreements. You brought up that piece around, you know, agreeing that from 10 to 12 is focus time or we're not reaching out to Mm -hmm. one another. Can you tell us any other practices that either you implemented at BrightWeb or you've seen work elsewhere uh, and now that you work with at Nature of Work that you think work really well, like uh, effective strategies for team meetings or one-on-ones or these kind of agreements for how you work during the day. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of meetings, um, one of the things I feel is really important, again, is is having grounding practices at the beginning of your meetings um, and, and mm-hmm. taking a minute, two minutes. I, I really just appreciate two minutes of silence in a room with people or even on a video call with people um, so that everybody slows down and gets grounded into what the purpose of the meeting is. And then starting the meeting by agreeing to what are we trying to do here together in the next X amount of minutes, in the next 30 minutes hour. And coming to really clear terms about that at the beginning of the meeting so that we can all work towards that purpose collectively um, and not just not just use like otherwise meetings kind of just absorb as much time as you give them. And, and if people come Mm. in without, you know, often we're back to back on things. And if we don't just take that minute to ground back into reality, into the present moment, it's, it's hard for us to, to get focused on the, on the purpose of the meeting or on the substance of the meeting. So I find that to be a really effective 
technique. I actually have um, some recorded music that's like crystal bowl music or things that I've set to two, like I've recorded little two minute snippets. So I just play those. We sit in silence. Um, we often will do a check-in. So one of the things I think is really important, especially in a virtual environment, is that there's a time for personal connection. Um, I think one of the things that we, we've mm. fallen into also with things like Slack is a lot of transactional communications, which is very dehumanizing. And, um, and it's, and it, and it's just, it, 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 it creates isolation. And so I find that at the beginning of a, a meeting, it's just like at BrightWeb, we're really clear because we're remote so often, because we're not in person very often together, it's really key to check in with one another and say, what's going on with you? And it could be, oh, I'm just about to have a barbecue this weekend and I'm super excited about it. Or my kid's sick and I'm feeling run down or, um, you know, just something to, to get a feel for how the other person is doing and what's going on in their world and a, a real human connection, which I think in a lot of organizations mm-hmm. feels like it's a waste of time or something like that. But I actually think it makes everything move smoother mm. and faster because people feel closer to one another and more inclined to want to help one another. So you mentioned this earlier about remote teams. You know, we're recording this in a time of COVID. Majority of uh, especially non-essential workers are in a work remote environment, will be for some time, and perhaps maybe some will continue doing this because it has worked or it makes sense for them going forward. What are some of the ways that you've seen teams work well together so that there is both a balance of trust and of accountability and of knowing we're on the same page and of moving towards the same and right yeah. goals. And this is a super interesting question for me. Um, I, I'm a student of spiral dynamics. Are you familiar with spiral dynamics at all? Yes. No, so it's a, um, it's a framework. It's a framework from developmental psychology, from the world of developmental psychology. And it's basically laid out a set of levels of consciousness that basically individuals go through, um, communities go through, societies go through, organizations go through. And and it's really interesting the way it's laid out. Basically, if you look back at civilizations over the last couple of thousand years, the consciousness of our organiza- uh, of our civilizations has evolved as the interconnectedness between our civilizations has expanded and be, as the, you know, as our communities and, and society and world has become more complex, our level of consciousness has to expand, um, to, to meet the, to meet mm. that complexity. And the same is true for organizations. And so basically in spiral dynamics, there's, um, a number of levels that are considered tier one, and then there's what's called tier two. And, and that's where you move into basically a more holistic view of how to operate. And so when we look at the last 50 years or so, um, most organizations basically operate in the last two levels of tier one, which is, and they're designated by color. So basically orange, which is, um, a command and control, um, like, Mm. like lots of policy. It basically, it, it, it might not explicitly say this, but it, it basically implies that we don't trust people. So we need policies and we need bureaucracy and we need, lots of hierarchy and managers because people can't be trusted to do the right thing by themselves. Right. And so I think a lot, most got it. Yeah, lots of rules. Yeah, exactly. Right. Rules for, and then, yeah. and then green is the sort of next level of consciousness. And it basically starts to say, well, well, culture is actually super important and people feeling connected is super important. You can't rules alone are no longer enough. We need, we need some level of connection. We need culture. And so over the last couple decades, especially the last 10 years, culture has been super big in, in HR circles and talking about, Mm -hmm. um, the need to basically the need for culture to be there. But it's interesting because with all this hierarchy and all these rules and all this under underlying sort of essence that people can't be trusted, culture has to basically fight for a place in that in that infrastructure, it, it, it's sort of like, is it culture or is mm. it dominance and which is going to win? Um, so, but, but it's, it's, but it has improved things. And then when you move into tier two, and this is, this is where I've, I've, I've come to realize, like I've always run my organizations, but this has finally given me language around it. But in a tier two organization, you start to lead from a place of inherent trust for people in the sense that you believe that people if they're given the right opportunity and the right, you know, respect that they will do their best and they will deliver, 
you know, they will do it, everything they can and they will act with integrity um, and that people inherently want to do good. And I think when you move into that environment, you, you do away, you, you, you're like, you don't really need policy anymore. You need some ideas around what our values are and what, what are, what are the top line mm-hmm. expectations, but you don't need lots of levels of hierarchy. You don't need a lot of, you don't need micromanagement. You don't need, um, a ton of policy. You suddenly allow, and what's super interesting is that you basically start pushing decisions down, right? Instead of having decisions trickle up, like what's interesting in orange and green organizations is that the more you move into a role of leadership, the more you time spend time in meetings. And the reason for that is that decisions are being pushed towards you. And sooner or later, you're just a decision machine because there's so many decisions and there's so many meetings and you're trying to gain context to push decisions back down, like to, to, to send decisions back down. And in, in, a, in a tier <laughs> two organization, you say, well, actually, the people on the ground they're the ones who are equipped to make the best decision. They should ask me for advice and they should seek expertise around them, but they know what they know what needs to happen. So you basically do away with you do away with that, which in turn basically allows an organization to be far more flexible, far more agile and 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 able to adapt to to change because you don't get stuck in this sort of bureaucratic line of decision making. That's so interesting because I want to root myself in the shoes of, say, an entrepreneur and a small business owner who perhaps, you know, is listening and goes, yes, I get it. Like I could inherently name those philosophies that I think are the important filters or considerations of those decisions and how we could guide it. But say their culture currently isn't that or hasn't been that or they're still just nervous about trusting that leap into it. So I guess two part question is one, how could you transition a culture that hasn't been to that been that into one that is mm-hmm. that tier two? And then secondly, uh, I know you've said, you know, you found it more effective. Is there anything that you can say perhaps to um, entrepreneurs who are starting afresh and new, or perhaps it's actually the same answer, which is how do you structure this either from new or recreate a, a culture yeah. to do this? Um, I'll say I, I, I would not call myself an expert in how to transform an organization. So I think that's probably really challenging. And but I think the things, but it's it's definitely possible. One great example, and it was a lot in the news, um, was um, Zappos, the shoe company, and they pushed towards holacracy, basically a um, management management style called holacracy, which is a form of tier two uh, tier two organization. At that time, and they basically said, this is going to be really tough and a lot of people aren't going to like it. And if you want to go, we've got an exit package set up for you. And about a third of the organization left. Mm. Like, And they're, and they're a massive organization. Mm. But they said, we're going this way and we're moving to a place where, you know, you there's no, like your C, like the CEO can't fire anybody down below here. And like, there's, there's, there's basically a new way of thinking about this, which is radical, especially for somebody who's been a manager or a senior leader for 30 years and, and they don't know any other mm-hmm. way. So they go, well, how do I, how do I lead without having any control? Right. So, so I mm. think it's, I think there's a lot of challenges with transforming an organization, organization, but it definitely starts from the top. So, but I think some of the things to think about are, and if you're starting an organization from scratch, you have a real opportunity is that in, it, there's some basic practices that you basically replace old paradigms with. So instead of management, you have coaching, right? And you have, and you have mentorship and, and therefore you have, and you have substance, like substance matter experts, and you have people who are more experienced than, than, than younger staff to go to and to learn from. But those people don't necessarily have authority anymore. They just have the ability to give advice and one of the things that's really big in these models is it's called the, it's basically called, um, what is it called? It's called, it might just be called the advice method, but basically what it says is that anyone can make a decision, um, with, you know, if they see the need in front of them, that something needs to change inside of the organization, they have the power to make that decision. However, their, their job is to consult with anybody that it's going to impact and that, and, and to get to get advice and to consider the advice of anybody it's going to impact. And 
if they don't do that, that's a serious problem. But as long as they get that, that input and that, you know, then they can make that decision. And what's super interesting, like in my experience, what I've found is that this is the way I've always led. I've kind of like, I have lots of opinions. Like I am not short of opinions as a leader. I'm, and I'm, and I'm strongly worded and, uh, you know, I'm pretty bold in, 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 I'll, I'll let you know what I think, but I've always come from a place of you ask me for my opinion, I'll give it to you, but then I'll say, well, what do you think? And what are you going to do? And so you kind of, you, you, you're able to give advice and you're able to give input from a place of experience. And then you trust the person Then you trust that they're going to, to, to either, you know, take it into account and maybe they see something you don't and they're going to, you know, but at least, but they'll listen. And, And what I find is that you don't necessarily need to say you have to do this because you build moral authority by trusting people. And so you create, you create basically a paradigm where you, and you create a relationship where they feel safe coming to you and asking you for advice and for input. And they listen closely because they know that you're there to, to help them, not to control them. There's um there's a unbelievable book called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Lelou. Um, it honestly breaks down all of this in incredible detail and he's done a ton of research. Mm. He also has about 150 videos of every concept from the book online as well. And they're all free. So it's pretty cool. Wow. That's yeah. great. Thank you for that. So taking it kind of the next step into the super yeah. tangible, are there any tried and true systems or technologies that are, you consider best in class in these areas? Yeah. So I think, I think there's lots. Um, I, I think that um, in terms of technology, the most important thing is how you implement it. And so like, and so I know this is not a super tangible answer and I wish it could be like, I, like if I, my tangible answer is I love Asana. I think it's a fantastic PM software and I think it does a really good job of surfacing what needs to be done. Um, I'm not a big fan of Slack. I think most like nature of work will not use Slack. BrightWeb uses Slack. Um, I think there's other ways to communicate. I think, you know, Zoom, I think for all the Slack Zoom is getting right now in the world, I think Zoom Zoom is best in class in terms of video. Um, I know there's some security issues that they're working out. People forget that Zoom just went from 10 million to 200 million users in three months. Um, and of course that comes with a bit of growing pains. But I, you know, I think there's tools that I love and that I use. Um, and, um, and that's, that's, you know, that's cool. I think the most important thing is though, is how you implement these, these technologies and making sure that everyone is using them the same way. To me, the most important thing, like we use Google drive and we keep everything in the cloud. That's really important for me and my organizations, especially if you're remote is that you're never saving stuff to your desktop or a local drive. It's always being saved to the cloud. And the current version of every document is always there. And that's an example of just, if everybody does that, then you never have to ping someone and go, hey, do you have the latest version of the doc? The, all of that kind of like micro communications go away. And if something happens to that person's computer or they are offline for a while or you're working when they're not, you can all access and it keeps the organization moving. So that's an example of um, kind of having a system for how are we going to use cloud, like the cloud, like cloud for storage. Or mm-hmm. if you are going to use Slack, how are we going to use Slack? What are our agreements about expectations around communication and response rate and off hours and weekends? Because some people like to catch up on Slack and email on the weekends. Does that mean everybody else does? If your boss is sending you an email on the weekend, does that mean you have to respond? And if there's a if there's a lack of like a lack of um, surfacing that, the unwritten expectation might be, or the unspoken expectation might be yes, you do respond to that on a Sunday when the leader might not care at all if you don't respond till Monday. So I think just getting on the same page about how we use different tools is really key. And I'll just touch on that one one step further in terms of communication tools. We now have typically like some kind of project management software where some communications happen. We have uh, instant communications like Slack or Teams or whatever. That That's where other things happen. And then there's email. And then hopefully there's phone calls and video calls and like real real time connections as well but in terms of those those layers i think it's important as an organization to define when do we use slack and when do we not use slack and when like when does it escalate to email and when does it escalate or when do we use the project management software so that people aren't writing say five email five paragraph messages in slack 
that someone is expected to respond to because Slack is not built for that. It's, it's built for fast things that you can forget about in five minutes. So things like that, I think, really help technology become less of a, like a distraction and noise and be more of a, a tool that really helps propel your organization. Okay, Steve, last question for you today is, what does having a resilient mindset mean for you and how do you actively foster it for yourself? Yeah, resilience for me is about remembering the big picture, like remembering what life is actually about. And there's kind of a macro and a micro way to look at that for me. On the macro level, it's about remembering that life is actually truly a gift and that we're here to learn and to grow and that luckily, you know, nothing, I'm in a position and a lot of people listening here are in a position where virtually nothing happening is a life or death situation, though we often treat it like that, like our stress levels would, you know, if we were measuring our stress level on a chart, it would seem like we were in a life or death situation. So I think remembering that business endeavors and goals and things you're trying to achieve like it's a game and the goal of the game is to have fun, to learn, to create value, um, you know, and to be generative, to be, to be generative to life, to, to improve the quality of life for others. You know, and like that's, that's business. It's not a life or death endeavor. Um, of course we need to make a living and those kind of things. And, and, but those things generally work out if you, if you try and deliver value. So that's like the macro to me on the micro, the way to remember that and the way to stay grounded is, is really solid daily practices um, of, of solitude, of meditation. So I have a really strong meditation practice in the morning and a, and a really strong morning practice. I make time for walks. And when I'm on walks, I'm listening to ambient music or to the trees. Like I'm not listening to podcasts and audiobooks all the time, though this is a great podcast and I recommend it. Um, but um, really creating that space for reflection and for inner, inner you know, and for inner space and for... Um, just for looking inward. Cause I think when you do that, you settle back in and you realize things about yourself and about your situation and you can feel gratitude and you, you just slow, you, everything slows down. And, and that, and when you're able to do that, then you're able to respond in a way that is resilient. That is, you know, is in the best interest of yourself and others. You're not just reacting to everything that's happening around you. You're, you're actually calming your nervous system down. You're coming from a place of, um, yeah, I guess of, um, of, of, of reflection and of strength, like of inner strength, of true strength. Mm-hmm. 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 Thank you so much, Steve, for talking through the slowing down and the importance of that and mm. the importance of intention for both our communication, our behaviors, but also for why we use Slack <laughs> for those... For those who want to learn more from you and about you, where can they find you online? Yeah, you can find uh, me on Instagram at Steve Rio. You can find me most places. You just Google Steve Rio. So that's pretty easy. Um, you can always email me, Steve at natureofwork.co. And then you can find all about Nature of Work in our program, which is launching in May. Um, you can find all about that at natureofwork.co or the same on Instagram at natureofwork.co. Co. And then if you're interested in my podcast, um, which really explores a lot of what we've talked about today in, in depth and also gets into spirituality and all sorts of other aspects of life, um, you can search for Now with Steve Rio wherever you listen to your podcasts. Awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, thanks, Paulina. The Scotiabank Women Initiative is once again collaborating with FWE to provide the special edition of The Go-To. Together, we're responding to the challenges faced by women entrepreneurs during these uncertain times. The Scotiabank Women Initiative supports women-led businesses, no matter what stage of growth. In addition to our online knowledge center, Scotiabank customers who join the program get access to group mentorship sessions with one of our advisory board members. Our advisory board is composed of Scotiabank executives who provide expertise on a number of key topics that will help them grow their business. After you've listened to this podcast, we invite you to scotiabankwomeninitiative.com to find a program expert near you to talk about how we can help support your business.
Jacqueline Jennings is of mixed heritage, Cree, Métis, Anishinaabe, and European settler descent. She's the director of the Fireweed Fellowship, a national Indigenous entrepreneurship accelerator program, a co-facilitator of decolonizing practices, and a group facilitator with Radius SFU. Jacqueline's background with iconic Canadian fashion retailers Aritzia and Lululemon have created a foundation of knowledge in the development of robust, vertically integrated, purpose-driven brands. Through one-on-one coaching and in program design and delivery at three Canadian startup accelerators, Jacqueline has guided and supported entrepreneurs in creating dozens of mindfully and impactful community-focused businesses. Jacqueline is also a mother, a plant medicine and gardening enthusiast, and a horsewoman residing on what is currently known as the Sunshine Coast of BC. Welcome, Jacqueline. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here, Paulina. And I just wanted to mention that my pronouns are she and her. Thank you. So Jacqueline, you've worked with businesses large, large like Aritzia and Lululemon, and small businesses through your consulting work with entrepreneurs. Your activism work is centered around decolonizing business and bringing Indigenous and matriarchal values into our ways of working. What is a first step for entrepreneurs when thinking about this? What can we learn from practices that have been around for centuries? That's such a great question. Thank you. What I recognize is that I've been bringing decolonized lens to my work for a long time, long before I had the language to name what that even means. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking back to the beginning of that journey and the questions that I asked myself and that I would suggest that anyone um, interested in this topic asks themselves are things like, why do we do it this way? Why do I believe this is the best practice? Whose idea is this? Who does it serve? So those really simple questions um, that I asked myself about why I believe certain things to be true led me to unpack some of the, um, you know, constructs and pillars of imperialism and neocolonialism that I had accepted. Mm -hmm. An example would be, why do we work Monday to Friday, you know, (laughs) eight hours slash nobody works eight hours anymore. Um, And this was early in my career, you know, and, and so I did a little bit of research and, you know, it turns out there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is that that's the hours that Victorian era bankers in England work. (laughs) And then, you know, you add on, weekends um, coming out of union and, you know, human rights and workers' rights movements. But it was just so interesting when I asked that question to unpack all of these, um, you know, reasons for how I was spending the majority of my life that Mm -hmm. had nothing to do with me. There was no evidence or wisdom around what gets the best results out of people or myself um, or what is best or my health or mm-hmm. workers' health. So, you know, when you start to start with an example like that, you start to see how, um, you know, we could probably build things in a better and different way if we were, if we were questioning and then given the freedom with those answers to redesign things. Mm. You know, the, one of the, the central um, parts of my, my professional journey has been to, um, and is, it is an ongoing practice, is to de-silo and to show up as a whole integrated human at, versus what I thought was needed in my career, which was to show up as a work robot who has mm-hmm. no emotions, no physical needs, no family, and is 100%, you know, um, professional, whatever mm-hmm. that means. Mm-hmm. Versus the richness I can bring to my work if I show up as, you know, an emotional, spiritual, physical, and intellectual human. Mm -hmm. In your work with entrepreneurs, is this something that comes up often? What kind of practices do you see them doing perhaps on a regular basis that they're able to touch back into this place? Yeah, I think the, the thing that stands out to me when you talk about that and as it relates to entrepreneurship is I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs. And I think one of the, the big um, 
sort of markers of an entrepreneur is this curiosity. So mm-hmm. a lot of um, startups and entrepreneurial businesses are focused around innovation and an innate questioning of status quo. Why is this the best solution we have now? Is there a better way of doing it? So it's actually quite connected, um, you know, asking questions around equity um, and, you know, the, the way that we do things and become and become a, a student of our industry. I think there's there's an opportunity there to um, just carry on that innate line of questioning and curiosity a little bit further. So, um, you know, asking what, one of the ways that I connect with decolonizing is asking about um, or or looking at how my ancestors would approach something. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting curious about my ancestry or the wisdom of the land where I um, am living and working. You know, we can we can also learn a lot from nature. I'm really interested in how entrepreneurs can benefit from getting curious about biomimicry. Mm, tell us more about that. What does that mean? How does that show up? That, well, as a, as a non-expert in biomimicry, what that means to me <laughs> is... Um, looking at the way that nature already functions perfectly and how we can pull from that um, into systems in business and, and technology. So that could be everything from spending time um, looking at how a beehive works mm-hmm. or how, um, you know, on a, on a societal level, or it could be looking at the structure of, a leaf or a bird's nest as inspiration for, um, you know, a building or a bridge. I wonder if you could share what have you learned about your ancestors or from the land or from this journey of yours that you now see as really powerful, either considerations or ways of being that you can integrate into the today. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that the question was like, what have I, how have mm-hmm. I benefited from this learning? And I'm on a, I'm on an ongoing journey of cultural reclamation. I did not grow up in community. And um, so it's, it is, it's very timely. So I'm learning just, I feel like a baby in my learning journey about matriarchy mm-hmm. and um, what, you know, what I understand matriarchy to stand for is the collective over the individual and I think Mm. there was no I mean that's an oversimplification but it's also kind of perfect for where we are right now you know late stage capitalism is you know valuing the individuals when um, over the collective good um, valuing you know quarterly returns over the environmental long-term impacts and um, and then also, I think matriarchy really looks at how people are motivated. Mm-hmm. In some of my really beautiful mentorship in within from within the Squamish um, ma- uh, nation matriarchy, learning about how traditional ways of raising children looked at their innate strengths, mm. um, and, and then supported them with mentorship to grow into their support role in the community versus this is the way that everybody goes through school. You all learn the same things. You toe the line, you, you know, the middle of the pack is the place to be. Um, so really, you know, going from that sort of traditional, um, ancient and and still today practice um, and connecting with some of some more modern ways of framing it. I I was um, lucky to see Dan Pink, um, who's an expert and kind of in that Malcolm Gladwell crew, speak on what motivates people, and he sort of distilled it down to autonomy, purpose, and mastery you know, up to a certain point money. And then after a certain specific, probably ever moving point, those three things. And I think that um, autonomy and mastery are directly tied to the ability to work within our strengths instead Mm -hmm. of working against them. Mm -hmm. So I, one way I think about this is like, how do we support teams and working from their own strengths versus the way, and this is how a lot of us have 
been schooled in our career is the way the individual leader works best. So an example would be if you're on a team with an executive who gets up at 5 a.m. and is emailing at seven, you know, six and seven and, and then kind of takes off in the afternoon, that's probably how your whole team is operating Mm. if you don't want to get left in the dust. Um, So I think one of the problems that matriarchy addresses is that we are not expecting teams to adapt to just how one person likes to do things. Mm. The the team um, can be more focused around results or the collective good versus pleasing the CEO which unfortunately is how a lot of businesses are structured. Can you speak to, you know, the business owner and the entrepreneur who perhaps does have trepidation around that, who perhaps hasn't, um, hasn't led in that kind of a capacity before, hasn't um, integrated that into how they work and are now kind of struggling through that muddle. How can they, how can they see through that and really um, feel the strength in that? So for folks who are leading teams um, and maybe they're just now realizing that their team has been orbiting around their way of doing things and they want to shift and focus more on a strength-based approach, the first thing to do is to get really curious about your team. And a a practical tool that I have um, I've learned and, and apply in most of the businesses that I work with is find out what your people want. Mm. You know, and, Go to the and not, <laughs> not, not necessarily about their best idea for how to structure your company, because that's probably, you know, beyond their, their capacity or their skill set. But what do they want for their life? Mm. You know, what, what motivates them? What are their individual core values? What is their individual long term vision? And if you can create a space where it's okay to say, you know what? Five years from now, I see myself being a vineyard owner and not say, well, like, oh, you're not committed to be fired. But, mm-hmm. you know, accepting that people are going to have visions outside of the business and then working, you know, to the degree that you can to make sure that they're working on projects that build capacity or skills towards that vision. Or even just to be able to mention or check in, hey, how's it going with that marathon you're training for? Or, you know, I know you were you were trying to buy your first property. Like, how's that? Just having that more holistic and human approach. So getting curious about long-term what they're up to vision, in terms of vision and values um, is a really good starting point. And then also questions that I find often don't get asked in business partnerships or teams are, and I've seen it so many times I do in my, within my coaching business, I've done quite a bit of co-founder mm. um, mediation. And, you know, the, the first question I always ask them is like, why, what do you, why do you work together? Like, what do you like about each other? And the second is like, how do you best do, like, how do you best work? How do you do your best work? And so many times these two co-founders, and this could be an executive team, they're both like, oh, well, you know, honestly, like I have a really hard time getting out of bed in the morning. And I just, I really, I really hit my stride at like 10 or 11. Yet for some weird reason, they're both trying to be in the office at 730 to like <laughs> out productivity each other. Meanwhile, they're just wasting energy and they actually wanted the same thing if they ever talked about it. So like, how do you do your best work? What do you want long term? You know, what are the conditions for you to thrive and to be most creative? Are you, you know, are you tapping into creativity at 10 o'clock at night? Then why the heck are you logging on at 730 in the morning? What have you seen that co-founders who are in business together, what are some either conversations or routines or structures that they set in place that really help them set themselves up for success? Is there anything that you've seen that you, when you work with co-founders or you've observed that have, you've gone, oh, this, this is really going to be a tool that will help you, or this is really working for you? Yes. <laughs> um, so it's funny. I think all of this advice also could um, probably relate to a marriage because, you know, a co-founder relationship is often a lot like a marriage, but um, a couple of tools that I 
have seen really support those relationships are doing in tandem some leadership development and personal work. Mm. So whether that is some inquiry um, and testing into what are your strengths. Another one that I find, so I I personally use the strength finder model Mm -hmm. Um, and then reading about each other. Because a lot of times it's actually stuff you already know that you might find irritating or <laughs> that you admire, but you didn't have the language to name it. And there mm-hmm. is a tremendous power in being able to name things in relationship and communicate about them. This also lends to getting clear on roles, which especially in startups, I find that a lot of co-founders have conflict that is surrounded around Mm. or that comes from undefined or a lack of clarity around roles. You know, we hear this maxim all the time that like everybody needs to do everything. Mm -hmm. And yes, to, to a certain degree, but at a certain point um, you're just duplicating and potentially stepping on each other's toes. And another tool, and this is going to sound kind of funny (laughs) that is really important. And actually this doesn't just go for co-founders, but I think all high performance teams should do this is, do take the love languages test. Oh, (laughs) right. So the, the five love languages are words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, gifts, and quality time. And there's a free test online. It's for couples, but I think it is so applicable in business because what it is essentially saying, like you can take it and apply it to romance, but you also, it's how you receive um, praise. Mm. and caring and appreciation. And so I personally relate having worked for, you know, a boss for a long time who had a very different love language. Mm. And he was telling me all the time that I was doing a good job and words of affirmation are my lowest love Mm. language. Mm. And so I constantly felt unappreciated Mm. when I felt the most appreciated is someone that he did business with that I didn't even work for sent me a gift certificate to a day at the spa. And I was like, I'm, I feel so seen, <laughs> you know, or like somebody offered to take some work off my plate or come over and build me a piece of Ikea furniture. And Let me like, get acts of service. Acts of service. <laughs> yes. But yes, that would be my, my number one suggestion with co-founders because you can weather a lot of failure and hard times in business if you feel like you've got each other's backs. Mm-hmm. Mm. So let's talk about the self-leadership as a leader. Because we can. I want to talk about menstrual cycles. So this is something I have heard you talk about. And this is a part of your body of work that I know is kind of here over here on the side. And I think it is so powerful. And it is very connected to this concept of um decolonizing of matriarchy of de-siloing so can you and I can spend a whole podcast season talking about it but I've been I've been tuned into the cyclicality for probably actually right before I had my first baby so almost four four and a bit years ago and it's shifted and changed as I've had babies of course um but can you tell me can you walk us through what the cycle flow looks like what it can mean what can we begin to consider for our own self-responsibility and self-management around that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think what is important to say is how one of the ways that I came to this is much like that questioning of like, why do we work, you know, eight hours a day and Monday to Friday. And it was sort of questioning um, along those lines and, realizing that it was like impossible to get a dentist appointment or go to the bank. (laughs) Like if you have a job, what is that about? And realizing that, you know, in the forties and fifties, men were in the majority of the workforce and most of them. And in fact, if you watch mad men, (laughs) you know, you would even like having a wife at home to take care of your dry cleaning and your dinner and your banking was like a, tick um that they looked to check off when they were hiring people and so recognizing you know 
initially that the workforce and the way that we work is not set up even for single people, definitely not for, um, you know, any other gender expression other than hetero um, cisgendered men. And, and then deep diving a bit deeper, like, you know, what is um, unpacking some of these limiting beliefs that I personally had about how, you know, I just feel like the expectations on me all month long, I was, I was, you know, not meeting them. And I'm, and this is actually something that's come up in this work a lot. So in my coaching and work with entrepreneurs, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs who ha happen to have uteruses and, um, and this, this idea that they felt like they were failing, you know, one or two weeks out of the month every month mm -hmm. was something that I wanted to address head on. And, and so really recognizing that the expectation that we perform the same every day of the month is a totally colonized mindset. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. It's actually quite a new idea because when we were, you know, if we go back in, in human history, when we were more um, farming based communities or um, nomadic, more tribal, like everything was around the month, the moon time, um, the, you know, that sacred time, there was times of work and times of rest. You didn't just do the exact same activities every single day for a month, regardless mm -hmm. of whether or not you had a uterus. Mm -hmm. So it's about coming into, I think about it as coming into harmony with technology that's existed for thousands of years. This like simple mm -hmm. wisdom, similar to like, why do we, why are we awake and working when it's light out mm -hmm. and sleeping when it's dark or, you know, harvest time in around seasons. So um, reflecting on the cycles that anybody connects with, not just those in, imposed by this heteronormative toxic patriarchy. And um, I, so I started doing this work sort of off the side of my desk. Like I would be working with entrepreneurs on their business and then be like, oh yeah, and by the way, like this and that. And I got really curious about it in 2010. I was listening to a uh, like, I think I was, I don't even have TV. So I must've been like at my parents' house and they had the news on and there was just like some coach or um, somebody training in, with Olympic athletes who in pa passing mentioned that this athlete was training in sync with their cycle. Mm. And I was like, I've been, a, I was a competitive athlete growing up. I worked for a company that was exclusively competitive. <laughs> <laughs> what how am I only hearing about this for the first time in my 30s mm -hmm. and so again I you know Google is amazing I did a little research and I learned like the first thing I learned was that you know there's four phases in a menstrual cycle one is your follicular phase I did not even know that it's the one that comes after bleeding and in your follicular phase you have a heightened capacity to build muscle memory endurance and you have a higher threshold and tolerance for pain so I mean, um, and that is just hard then. yeah, that is just on the on the you know sort of athletic performance side. But then when you go into mindset, it's like higher higher tolerance for risk, um, more difficult ability to focus. Mm. So great time for brainstorming. Not a great time to sit down and edit a manuscript and be working on a spreadsheet. So I couldn't help but you know naturally start applying this to business. And I started reading and there's a lot of materials out there about what you should eat, especially if you're managing any sort of reproductive, um, mm. you know, disorder or illness, things like, you know, fibroids or cysts mm. in your reproductive system. But there wasn't much about business. And so what I observed, especially working in two corporations that primarily employ, um, you know, cis women was that, um, they were just, there was a lot of undue suffering and there was a lot of illness created by pushing through those times where your body and nature is just saying like, Hey, slow down. This is a time where you have less physical energy, but it's not a burden because you also have this ability to, you know, in our, in our luteal phase, which some people refer to as PMS, we actually have, um, a more clear grasp on reality. Mm. We're not, the edges aren't being dulled by all these nice natural Valium types type mm -hmm. hormones. 
So we actually have a clearer picture of what the F is really going on. <laughs> so maybe get time to like budget. <laughs> Great time to budget. Um, it's why, you know, it's why we tend to get into more conflict because we're like, hey, this isn't okay. Uh, um, it's a better time for us to work individually, not as a big part of a big, you know, extroverted, highly stimulating team. And it's a really good time. We have a we have real attention to detail. So mm-hmm. it's a great time for editing and focus and work output that is like me and my laptop you know, churning out words. Um, and I, I didn't really see anybody talking about that. And it felt like such a critical part in my responsibility as a coach to, you know, offer this to my clients. So even though it was like at the time sort of off brand for me, I, I put together some workshops and it was kind of like a bit reluctant. Like, I don't want to be the, you know, businesswoman who talks about her period all the time. In fact, like I, when I started, I, I couldn't say that really without blushing, but it's real. And if we're going to be whole integrated humans showing up in the workplace, that is a part of it. You can't pretend it's not, or you can, but there's a consequence. Yeah. And how will that serve you or not? You know, I loved what you just said earlier. You specifically said, it's not just a burden because here's what also that time gives you, like, here's the strength of that time. And that is such a, um, uplifting and and empowering way to look at that and sure there's so much that we can't structure a lot of things are structured around us and we can question that and there are things that are within our agency and our capacity to shift around when we're able to do things um and i i do think that as leaders having that self-responsibility around that and this uh, this being a tool to be able to do so can be so powerful Okay, Jacqueline, before we wrap, the last question I have for you is what does having a resilient mindset mean for you? And how do you actively foster it for yourself? So two sort of maxims that I, um, I live by, and that I was taught, you know, one is you cannot transmit something you haven't got. And another way that I think about this Mm. is I cannot fill your basket if mine is empty. And Mm -hmm. so when I think about resilience recently, it really um, turns into a a conversation about community care versus self-care. There's so much noise out there about Mm -hmm. self-care. We're even finally, thank Mm -hmm. goodness, starting to hear about self-care as it relates to entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial wellness, because burnout rate is so high. And what Mm -hmm. I recognized in this comes back to decolonizing is like I can take all of the bubble baths and manicures and yoga that I want and if I don't have a community of people supporting me my life and my business just doesn't work you know especially as Mm. we're working in communities that have been marginalized Um, if you're working two jobs to take care of your family there's no time for that but what really fills my cup or, or your cup is, you know, I'm, I'm so, um, I'm so privileged to have an incredible community of what happens to be other women who are also mothers taking care of me. And that looks like, Oh, Hey, your kid's sick. You know what? I made chicken soup and I'm dropping off half of it for you. And I don't even need to have a visit. It's just on your doorstep. Hey, I'm going to the store. What do you, what do you need? I'm putting in, you know, an Ikea order. It's a lot around nourishing and running errands that make like community care that supports me, but it's also just checking in and, you know, Hey, you know, I know you had that job interview or I, I know that you, you know, we're trying to close that series of funding. Like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Like, how can I support you? Um, because if it all resilience that is only generated within me is not sustainable, mm. it has to come from somewhere. Mm. I am not an engine that doesn't need fuel. Beautiful. Beautiful. We are recording this during the time of um, self-isolation during COVID. And what you were talking about in terms of the logistical support for folks, I've seen that around in my community too. And it feels so remarkably tremendous and simple and delightful and tangible. It's something I don't want to lose. 
I agree. And it's something I'm very grateful for has been built into my lifestyle here on the coast for a few years. And, and I joke, I've kind of been training for this pandemic for many moons. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Jacqueline, for joining us today to talk about decolonizing business, supporting yourself as an entrepreneur, menstrual cycles, and uh, resiliency. For those who want to learn more about you and follow you online, where can they do so? So my personal work, which at the moment um, is primarily leadership retreats, no one-on-one coaching, you can go to JacquelineJennings.com. And for my work with the Fireweed Fellowship, which is an accelerator program for Indigenous entrepreneurs, you can go to fireweedfellowship.com. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve and Jacqueline, for joining us today. Share your own experiences or ask questions. Tweet or tag us at FWE Canada. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe so that you'll always be in the know. All of this program's episodes are available at fwe.ca slash the go-to. And don't forget to download your free workbook at resilience.fwe.ca. Get exercises and more so that you can apply your learnings to your business today. The Go-To Special Edition is brought to you by the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Support is also generously provided by the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. A huge thanks to both of them. Thank you also to our incredible production team, Self-Hired Media and Hummingbird Translations, both of whom make it possible for us to bring you this podcast in English and in French. Until next time, stay ready, resilient, and strong.